Welcome to Team Performance Coaching. My name is David Hopper, and I want to thank you for being here today and listening to this. We are going to talk about Nehemiah chapter 2. And before we get into it, if you would like to have a book that goes kind of along the lines with leadership and what we're talking about throughout this entire podcast, I am offering up a book I wrote. It's called Growing Grass on Rocks. I use that terminology to describe something that does happen in nature, but it doesn't happen very often. It is difficult to see, it's difficult to do, but it does happen and it takes work. And I use that reference throughout the book to talk about leadership being the same thing. Leadership is something you can grow. Leading others is something that is difficult and challenging, like growing grass on rocks, but it is possible. And as we get better and better at it, you'll see it more and more in your life. If you would like this book, I'd love to send that out to you. Email me at teamperformancecoaching at gmail.com and I will send it to you. Just write a quick little note that says, I'd like the book, I'd like to use it to follow along, and uh, here's my address. I'd love to send it to you. So let's jump into this book, a little bit of flavor of it. We're in chapter two. This is about four months later from chapter one. If you haven't listened to chapter one, go back because it does matter so you understand what's happening. But chapter two, jumping in right at verse two, it says this. So the king asks me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Notice right off the bat how he respects authority, how Nehemiah treats the king. Uh, You see this a lot with Nehemiah. He understands that he is in a lower place, but he has the ear of the king. So he can be a leader, but he does it in a way that respects the authority that is over him. And he speaks well of that authority. He says, why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. And again, you see Nehemiah here praying to God before his answer. As in chapter one, we talked about this as well. Prayer is key. And he has a relationship with God. And he constantly goes back to God to make sure that he has this relationship, this habit of prayer with his father in heaven. So he prays to God and he answers the king and he says, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. So he respects authority. He understands who he's talking to and he's leading from this humble position of saying, I would like to go do this, but I respect the authority and your decision to make that happen. He also understands how to make an appeal. He owns the situation. And again, chapter one, we see this as well, owning it before God. He owned it. He cried in the moment and he personally took responsibility for the people that had allowed this to happen. But he owned it personally when he also talks to the king. Ownership is key if you want to be a great leader. We see this throughout the Bible. All the key leaders own the situation. One of my favorite examples of this is actually Paul. And he writes this obscure book, Philemon. And in this book, just some of the backstory of it, it's one of the few books of the Bible where you don't see any talk about Jesus Christ. And yet, you're going to see Jesus Christ all throughout this book. Paul's writing this book from prison. And he's writing about this this wealthy Roman of Philemon. And he is a leader in his house, and he owns slaves. 
One of his slaves goes by the name of Onesimus. These are all really easy names to say, by the way. But, and if I mess them up a few times, please bear with me. But anyway, Philemon and Onesimus are in a fight, but both have a relationship with Paul. See, Paul meets Onemus, <laughs> I knew I'd mess it up, Onesimus, and meets him in prison, has a relationship with him, becomes a follower of Christ under Paul. And so then Paul is writing to Philemon because they are in a fight, not Paul, but Philemon and Onesimus. And so what you're going to see is Paul begin to tell Philemon how he should treat his brother in Christ. So if you have your Bible, take a moment and turn over to this book in the New Testament, and I'm going to read it to you and just point out some of the ways that Paul shows leadership, shows who Christ is by giving a principle without ever really mentioning Christ. It's been there, but just, I want you to see this. So turn your Bible there now. Paul prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, and then to the sister and our fellow soldier and to the church that meets in your home. Notice that he has a church in his home. This is an incredible leader who is following God and Paul is writing him. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. Notice the way that Paul addresses him and just the way he starts this out. Because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. You see how he is speaking to this friend, how this he's speaking to this leader who is a, a wealthy Roman leader and has a church in his home? He's treating him with such respect. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. So he's talking about who this, this man who he's in a fight with, who was his slave at one point. I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to kept him, keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I, not, I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience. I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. So I want you to catch, <coughs> catch some of the stuff that Paul's saying here. Like I said, he hasn't mentioned 
Christ. It's not a, a message of this is you should do this because, you know, it's just something that Jesus is telling you to do. He's putting himself into the scenario. It's really powerful. What he's demonstrating is, let me share with you who Jesus Christ is in action. The action is this incredible gift of Jesus Christ changes the master-slave relationship. No longer are you a slave to God. You may start in that position because he is God. But when you become a follower of Christ, you become part of the family. You become a brother. Uh, it's a new kingdom. There's no longer class and race and economics and all the things that people would do as Romans. But now you're a brother in Christ. It's a family of Christ. And although you have every legal right to put Onesimus as uh, owing you something, as repaying you something, even put him in prison for what he has done, I'm asking you to forgive him and not just forgive him, but to actually restore him as your own brother, as a friend, as family. And when he talks about himself, he said, I'm going to pay the price. I will pay whatever he owes you. I will pay any consequence there is. See, what he's doing is showing just what Jesus Christ did for you and I. When he went on to that cross, he didn't have to, but he took all the sin, he paid for it, he owned it. And when he did that, he made us restored in him as a brother, no longer as a slave, but restored fully. See, a leader like Paul, like Nehemiah, they use creativity to deal with insurmountable hurdles. He doesn't mention Jerusalem by name because of the decree against it in Ezra 4.21. Now we're talking about Nehemiah. But he brings the idea of respect for the dead to the king. He's showing that he's going to own it personally. And he wants to do this in Christ's name, but without even mentioning Christ's name. What an incredible... What we see in Paul, what we see in Nehemiah, is this leadership principle of servant leadership. You are in a role in which you have someone over you, but in that role, you can still show Christ. This is leadership. When I was about, I'd say 25 through 35, and that age gap right there, I used to go wakeboarding with a buddy all the time and it was amazing. We'd go out at like 5 a.m. and we'd go out that early because that's when the water was glass. So when you're out there, you look and it's just, it looks like glass because the water is so flat and you want to wakeboard on this flat water. And I would always notice when I first get into the water that I would start to create this ripple effect in the water. So I first hop in and it makes the splash just you know getting in the water it's going to make it move but that ripple effect would go all the way out to the beaches it would just continue to move and ripple all the way to the side of the beach and i was so intrigued by that because it always reminds me that the smallest thing the smallest effect like dropping a rock in water has ripple effects that go so much further than ourselves. As followers of Christ, as those that are, hopefully you're listening to this and you know Christ, you have an effect on others. And that ripple effect matters. 
And our servant leadership, no matter who you are, no matter who you're under, you're showing who Christ is in your actions. Paul continued to show who Christ was in his actions without even mentioning Christ. Nehemiah doesn't use a bunch of Christianese and and stuff like that to talk to the king. It would have had no effect if he did. But instead, he shows who Christ is by his actions. And he owns the situation ahead of him. He speaks in a manner that says, I personally will take this on. Just as Christ did with our sin, we have to own it sometimes and say, I'm going to own this situation and pay the price that it takes to accomplish what is next. And then move forward in a servant leadership manner. In verse 7, back in Nehemiah chapter 2, it says this, I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. See the effect of having servant leadership in your style? So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When these other leaders, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. All right, so now we're moving into a new issue, a new problem, a new obstacle as he's moving forward and following what God's will is in his life. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one that I was riding on. Okay, so catch this. We've moved into phase two, where we're going to see Nehemiah's leadership continue to move forward. He understands that there is obstacles and enemies. He's prepared for those in that he has come into the king with this servant style of leadership and respect for the leader that's above him. He has prepared with some of these letters that are going to help him along the way. He understands that there's a real enemy, that there's going to be a group that comes against him. So what does he do next? He does exactly what we'd expect him to do. He begins to pray. See, in chapter one, he prayed. In chapter 2, he prayed. He prays before every situation, he prays in the middle of every situation, and he prays after. Go ahead and read verses 13 through 16 where it says, By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up by up the valley by night examining the wall and finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. What I like about that last section of scripture is we see a man who's carefully analyzing the situation to prepare for as many variables as possible. So throughout this entire uh, podcast about Nehemiah, we're going to mainly talk about servant leadership. But that doesn't mean we just sit back and always have the right words to say. What we also see is someone who does the work. 
someone who is going to go in each area and analyze exactly what needs to be done next. It's someone who uses their brain. And I like to say that a lot where God has given us a brain. We can't always just depend on a miracle happening. We have to use our brain when it comes to leadership. That's also something God has given to us. So he's preparing a series of goals that he's gonna do and present to his team to move forward in. He uses the education, the knowledge, he goes around, he assesses, he figures out what's the best course of action, who the enemies are, knowing that there's going to be difficulties along the way, seeing each section and then prepares how he's going to present that section to his team, which is what we see next in verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about this gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Do you see how he has set them up in a way that says, all right, he, the, obviously this leader has prepared. He's gone to the king. He knows the situation. He spent time with God. And once he presents all of this knowledge, they're ready to start. So he goes on in verse 19, but when the Sambalat, the Horonite, the Tobiah, the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? So he has prepared in advance what is now coming. He knew this was going to come. So he went in advance and was ready for when this rebellion happened. I answered them by saying the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. See, here, here's a major key to this whole story. He doesn't tell everybody everything. He sets small goals along the way. He gives little details and then he ignites the fire in each group that follows him about the job ahead. If he's told the beginning all that he's going to do and where it's going to end and every aspect of it and all the difficulties that are going to come along the way, that's not going to have a, a dramatic effect. In fact, it's probably going to be dead at arrival. But instead, he keeps the focus on God. He keeps the focus on why they're doing it. He shows the work that he's prepared. He talks about all the things he has seen. And then he prepares little goals so that his team will have success through the good and the difficulty that is coming very quickly. So I want to talk through some of these leadership behaviors that Nehemiah shows us. But before we do that, let me just take a minute just to give you a quick little commercial about the podcast we're using here. So listen to this and then we'll jump into the leadership behaviors that Nehemiah shows us with chapter two. Thank you for taking this journey with me through chapter two. Here's some key principles that I pull out of it. One is preparation. We see Nehemiah being prepared for the situation at hand. What may or may not happen next, he is prepared for it. He has spent the time through chapter two to go and look and assess every situation that might happen. And then he prepares his team to be ready for those situations that we don't know what may happen, but gets his teams totally bought in on the overall goal of why they're doing what they're doing. 
totally bought in on this is about God. This is about restoring our people. He, he, he pulls them into the overarching goal and then gives them small tasks ahead in preparation of what they need to do to accomplish their part that helps the overall goal. One of the ways I demonstrate this in my leadership classes is I call it blindfold leadership. And I'll take about five people from the class, bring them up front, and I blindfold them. And then I whisper in their ear numbers, and I tell them, okay, now you have one minute to go from the smallest number to the largest number, and you're blindfolded. So they quickly do it the first time because they use their voices. They say, I'm number one, I'm number two, I'm number three, and they quickly get in that order because they're using their voices. And I say, great, great job. You did it under a minute. Fantastic. Then I do it a second time and I give them numbers again. And I say, this time, not only are you blindfolded, but you don't have your voice. You can't use words. So at first they sort of stand there for a second, but then they start to realize, okay, I can tap. And so they'll either tap the wall or they'll tap each other, but they'll tap the, the number that they are and they quickly move into the order based on this tapping method, which works great. And they usually do it. They usually do it in under a minute. So I go, great, good job, third time. So the third time I say, okay, again, you're blindfolded and you don't have your voice. And then I whisper in their ears numbers. But this time I don't give them the one, two, three, four, five numbers. I give them one, and then I give the next person like a thousand and one, which is gonna be very difficult to tap. And then I give the next person negative one. And then the next person, I usually go 1.1. And so this time they're like trying to figure out how can I get from the lowest number to the highest number when I have such an obscure number that I was not expecting to have. And what's so funny is whoever has one is like adamant. They never let someone get in front of them because they're like, no, 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 I'm the lowest number. You can't be lower than me. Not realizing that person has negative one or negative two. And then it's just, it's hilarious to watch and hardly anyone ever makes it when the one minute time limit. And the idea is at the end of it, I go, okay, so you were prepared. You had worked through a couple problems, but what you didn't know is the situation changed without you even realizing it. Were you able to move through that and solve a problem, which usually the answer was no, but were you able to try and figure out a way or could you have figured out a way through that problem as well? See, that's what I see in Nehemiah. He has prepared, he's gone to the king, he's gone to these other leaders, he's got you know protection from certain areas from the king writing certain letters. He's done everything he can. Then he got his team into the overall goal why we're doing this is for God. It's about our people. It's about respect. We need to do this. And then he gives each team their goals moving forward. And he's prepared them as much as possible for what they don't know that's coming next. And we don't know what's coming next. There's always going to be surprises when it comes to leadership. Can you prepare your team in a way that says, I'm going to do everything I can to get you prepared to handle the surprise ahead and to work the problem to accomplish the goal, the overarching goal that we're trying to reach. I love the example of Paul Revere versus William Nolte. So Paul Revere, I asked the class, everyone know who Paul Revere is? He's, you know, the one that warned about the British and he went through all the towns warning him about the British. And then I say, okay, how many of you know William Nolte? Which did the exact same thing at the exact same period of time. And no one knows this person because somehow in the way that William did it, didn't work versus the way Paul did it and it did work. 
What was the difference? And if you go study the story, Paul Revere went from town to town, found the right person, the person of peace, the influencer of the town, got them on board and got them to get that town to understand this is real. Whereas whatever William did, he didn't get the right people on board, didn't prepare them for whatever surprises were to come. The way that we prepare matters. So in that story of Paul Revere versus William Nolte, we actually moved to key number two, which is all about networking. Are we teaching our teams, those followers, those that we lead to be network leaders? meaning you get the right people on board with you because there's going to be surprises along the way. So you prepare them, not only in just prepping them as knowing the overall goal, not only in knowing why they're doing what they're doing and having that, that, that step that they have to do to accomplish the overall goal, but also the kind of leadership that says, be prepared for surprises along the way. And the way you prepare is by networking and having many people join you in the mission ahead. Paul Revere was able to network the right leaders to prepare for the British that was attacking. William Nolte is forgotten in the annals of history because he didn't pull the right leaders, whoever he was talking to, and prepare them in a way for the surprise attack that was coming. So are you a network type of leader? The third key I see in Nehemiah chapter 2 is being a problem solver. All these are very much connected. The example I like to use with problem solving is that the housekeeper and attorney, a housekeeper versus an attorney, both solve problems in our life. But one is paid astronomically more money. Why? Because they solve a bigger problem. One is solving the problem of cleaning your house. One is solving a problem of cleaning up a mess that is beyond your capability of cleaning yourself. So the reason that you pay one more than the other is they solve a bigger problem. So can you prepare a team to be problem solvers, not to do the small things, but actually to solve big problems as they're moving forward? In Nehemiah, we see a leader that prepares his team to be problem solvers and to solve it in big ways. This gets me excited about chapter three because you're gonna to start to see some of the ways they solve these problems, including one part where they're actually holding a sword and a hammer at the same time not actually a hammer, but whatever tool that they're using and whatever they're doing, they understand that they also have to be prepared for the war that may break out behind them. So we're going to go there next in the next podcast. Can't wait for that. I want to thank you for coming with me on this chapter two. If you'd like that book, this is called Growing Grass on Rocks, How to Move People from Point A to Point B. A lot of these principles are in that book. I'd love to send it out to you. Just send me a quick email at teamperformancecoaching at gmail.com. And if you are interested in what team performance coaching can do for your organization, go to teamperformancecoaching.info. That's the website I'm using to connect with people and understand how we can help organizations, nonprofits, churches, businesses grow and move from stuck positions to unstuck um, good positions to great positions. Can't wait to do some of that with you. Send me an email if you're interested in any of that. And I look forward to the next podcast, which will be coming out very shortly. Mm -hmm.